have a two-year-old, and he uh, tends to like grab my AirPods and hide them <laughs> in different places in the house. So. I have a I have a a twenty-nine-year-old who still lives with me, and he takes my AirPods. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I have 27 more years to look forward to. Yeah, that sounds no, about exactly right. right. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My first computer was an Apple II Plus, and I think I was about 12 or so. Well, I remember uh, I remember clearly I was three years old uh, back in 1980, and my dad brought home a Tandy Color computer. Uh, and I had no idea what was going on, but I was barely becoming uh, literate, and I was like immediately entranced. And I saw This week on Sand Hill Road, entrepreneur Avery Pennerin and Ahmed Kumar of Accel Partners. Avery built the software company Tailscale. Well, Tailscale, uh, what's what's the best way to think of it? It's it's a programmable network. Uh, it is it is a thing that lets your devices talk to each other, and it doesn't matter about firewalls and stuff like that. So, like so many of us in Silicon Valley, Avery got a very early start with computers, and I can remember programming uh, a number of things, but also going to the back of those. Um, computer magazines because they would have written out in in hundreds and hundreds of lines of basic uh, some sort of little game or something and you just typed and typed and typed and typed and typed because you had to type it out of the magazine. Oh yeah, my dad typed a bunch of those, uh, and we had the cassette player uh, add-on. He wasn't he wasn't willing to pay for the the actual official cassette player, so we wired up a regular cassette player using like a soldering iron and some connectors. So your dad was some uh, sort of engineer as well. Uh, he's he was a, I guess what you might call a technician. Uh, he, uh, he he repaired stuff. I think he you know he's sort of famous among his family for like whenever any toy got broken, they would give it to him. And he he only like in his early years mostly just made it worse. Uh, but as he got <laughs> older, he got better at actually fixing things. Uh, but he always tinkered with stuff. So you built your first company as a teenager, right? Uh, was I a teenager? I guess I was a teenager. Yeah, I was 19 uh, when I started it, uh, basically in my dorm room with my uh, with my co-founder and best friend uh, back in 1997. And then sold it to IBM? Not immediately. Uh, it was actually, the, the funny thing uh, about that company was it was actually an experiment. So we went to the University of Waterloo, where generally you do like six different jobs. And we decided like one of the co-op terms we'd take, we'd start our own company. Uh, not because we knew what we were doing or because we really necessarily wanted to start a company, but because like, hey, this is some good work experience. So we'll like start a company, we'll sell something for four months, uh, and then we'll wind it down and go back to school. And then we'll know when we graduate, uh, whether we want to start like a real company for real. Uh, and the the problem was we built this this product that basically was hardware plus software. It was a Linux-based server appliance thingy. Um, and... 
we sold it, we could assemble one for $1,000 and then sell it for $2,000. And we made like a little profit during our four months. Uh, and that was all good. But then, you know, people kept calling us for tech support, even after that four months. And then next thing you knew, they were like, telling their friends about it. And their friends are like, hey, I want one of those. And like, as a student, uh, you know, $1,000 profit on every one of these things we built was pretty tempting. So we ended up uh, continuing to manufacture them until our apartment was basically a little mini factory. Uh, and eventually we had to bring in some additional people and it kind of got out of control from there. So this company was basically, uh, we failed to kill it uh, for about eight years until eventually IBM acquired it in 2008. So why sell it? I mean, you could be the CEO of this company now. What what decision, what, what did you learn about selling a startup to a bigger company? Uh, well, I think most important thing with that company, you know, why, why did we exit in the first place? It was just like, it took us too long to figure out what nowadays we would call product market fit. Uh, we had early adopter fit very early, like early adopters were very excited about this product. But in order to make it possible to sell things in volume, you have to have product market fit, you have to have like mainstream adoption of your product. And it was only in the last couple of years or so uh, before we sold that we got this product market fit and mainstream adoption uh, in a particular market segment. But by then we were so overextended, our investors were sort of getting tired of us. Uh, it was it was time to make an exit cleanly and our investors made their money back. We didn't get super rich, but it was like, uh, it was not long after the dot-com crash. Uh, so they were pretty happy with that outcome, but um, it was necessary to exit at that point. Uh, the outcome of selling was sort of disappointing. Like you don't really think about it that much, especially when I was that age. But what usually happens when a software company gets acquired is, is Despite everyone having the best intentions, the acquirer almost always fails to digest their acquisition. And IBM was definitely in that category. They had a very specific market reason they wanted our product. And that made sense for them. But the company that absorbed it didn't know what to do with that thing they had absorbed. And eventually it sort of just kind of got shredded. Hmm. You were eight years at Google uh, and you wanted to build an anti-Google and decided to leave the company. First of all, tell me what an anti-Google is. Well, I think um, the, the sequence of events was slightly different. I really liked my time at Google. Uh, one thing that happened, though, is the product I had spent about six years building, which was Wi-Fi routers uh, for an internet service, uh, just sort of got unceremoniously uh, a shutdown, which is something that Google does pretty often. And it kind of reminds me of like the days of my first startup when we sold out to IBM and then it sort of got unceremoniously shut down. So I'm like, all right, this is getting kind of tedious. I'm, I'm getting a little older now. Uh, I have enough money. I don't have that much money, but I have enough money to satisfy me. I don't need more of that. What I need is for me to build something that actually lasts. And the only way to do that is to start a startup. So walk me um, through the process of making that decision, because if you're at a big company making a decent wage with reasonable job security, then, I mean, that's a, that's a big decision to go out on your own. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, to be fair, working at Google, I made much more than a decent wage. Uh, they pay very well uh, for top engineers there. And so it was pretty, it's pretty compelling just to go there and, and, and relax. Uh, before I joined Google, I kind of joked to my friends, like, you know, maybe when I'm ready to retire, I should go work at Google uh, and just collect, collect a paycheck. Right, but um, even, I, even, you know, just to, to butt in, that you could do that. You could park at Google, right? But, the, but Google... You know, it's working on some pretty amazing things. So if you wanted to continue to apply yourself on cutting edge, amazing things, that's where a lot of people would do it. Right. Oh, yeah. And I, and I did. I worked there for seven years. And it was it was some of the you know best engineering uh, I've done in my life, working with some of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, the neat thing about Google is 
and this goes back to your question about what's the opposite of Google, but like at Google, they built a huge amount of infrastructure to deal with the problem of like, when you think about what they do, or their like core product of search, they search the entire internet millions of times per second, and they return results in like 0.1 seconds, right? To pull that off, you have to, you have to progress the state of the art of computer science dramatically, right? They were doing AWS before AWS existed by like probably a decade. And that stuff is absolutely amazing. What frustrated me about Google, though, is when you're trying to build anything that is not this service that scales to a billion users, you still had to use the same infrastructure. And that infrastructure is what one of my co-founders calls scale invariant. Like you're gonna, it's going to be just as hard to build it for a billion users as it is to build it, build it for 10 users, which is very impressive if you need to build something for a billion users. But it's actually really annoying when you need to build something for 10 users. And so after I left Google, which was just you know as a result of sort of my product getting canceled uh, and me being generally frustrated, I'm like, you know what? I entered the outside world and like this same thing has kind of infected everybody. Now every little thing anybody does has got to scale to a billion users. And I'm like, that's just that's just not how reality works, right? 99% of the projects done by 99% of the engineers uh, don't ever need to scale to a billion users. Even if you're working on a product that's going to scale to a billion users, most of the work you do is some kind of internal dashboard or HR tool or database query or something like that that will never scale to a billion users. And that stuff, the whole industry has been neglecting for probably 15 years now because we're so enthralled with this idea of making everything scalable. And so TailScale was the first thing we knew when we started Tail, uh, Tails, when we started the company. Uh, the name was the first thing we came up with because it's like, look, I think... Regardless of what we build, the problem we have to solve is people overcomplicating things. Let's make it so engineers can do the easy things the easy way, and we'll leave doing the hard things to somebody else. Avery, you told you told somebody money is boring compared to talking about technology, but you've raised a lot of it. Uh, Amit Kumar, the partner at Excel, is part of that. Uh, Amit, uh, why why write that big check? Well, I mean, for a couple of things. So number one, uh, we are very delighted that there are other really smart people who have written much larger checks subsequent to the check that we wrote, which is still a, a large quantum of money. But, you know, that's that's the job. That's what we do. So I'm a venture capitalist at a firm called Excel, and we write seed and Series A checks into what we hope to be defining companies. We've been very fortunate to work with companies like Facebook and Dropbox and Slack and Spotify and Groupon and you know, part part of the job is is writing these checks of you know call it the quantum of five to ten million dollars into businesses, early stage businesses. You know, before other people have figured out how special they're going to be. I mean, Tailscale was a unique situation where I think many people had sort of figured out the secret that Tailscale was a special collection of people. But you know, it was it was one of the most special opportunities that I've run across in the eight years that I've been a venture capitalist. And it's fundamentally what we do: we evaluate opportunities, we take pitches from you know, world-changing entrepreneurs just like Avery all day, every day, and the hopes that we run into an Avery, and we build a conviction, and then we invest in that business, and then we join the board of directors and help him help him run the company. Sandhill Road will be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. That board of directors, um, you've said in the past that you think that board was the difference between success and failure. I will also point out you sit on that board, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I I think that, you know, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at it. So the reality is these these founders, these entrepreneurs, they're the ones who drive these companies. And we are, to be clear, we are minority investors. You know, I know there's lots of movies made about what happened with Steve Jobs at Apple, and I'm sure there'll be other movies made about different companies. But almost always, we're one board seat on a larger board of investors. And we view it, or I view my job as sort of co-founder as a service. You know, I've been I've been an entrepreneur, not nearly as successful as Avery before I entered the venture capital game. I think it's one of the reasons I'm able to develop the empathy for what it's like to be in the seat and take the hard decisions and try to bring something new into this world. Like it's, it's incredibly difficult to build something from scratch. And, you know, I view my job as sort of acting as a pseudo co-founder to Avery and be a true teller for him, be a mirror and tell him, you know, when I think he's doing a great job or where I think he can improve. And when Avery thinks he's on top of the world, it's my job to bring him a little bit down to earth. And when he's down in the dumps because he's had a hard day or hard week, you know, my job is to bring him perspective and tell him, you know, how well we're doing and what a special company and trajectory we're on. So, you know, I think, I think the board is, it's super important and good governance is important in these companies, but fundamentally, you know, the venture job is about finding great entrepreneurs, investing in them, making that investment decision, winning the investment. And then, you know, after that, we're, we're sort of on team tail scale and we're doing our best to help Avery, not in just coaching him, being a partner to him, but also hiring in the executive team, referring people from our network. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Avery chooses to work with a firm like Excel and why a firm like Excel invests in a company like Tailscale is because we've invested in businesses that look very similar to this business in the past. Now, obviously, Tailscale is a really special, unique snowflake of a company, um, but we we have deep expertise in this category. And so we have a really wonderful network of talented people that have worked in similar types of companies that we are then able to introduce to Avery. And, you know, he, he likes some of them and he hires some of them. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's going pretty well. You mentioned that, you know, on the board, you are one of many, uh, and also that when it comes to funding, you're one of several. Uh, your firm works alongside CRV, Insight Partners, and others. How does that dynamic work in venture capital when you, after, you know, maybe the second round of funding, are not the only money in the game? Totally. Well, I mean, look, I think every great company, if you look at it, whether it's Slack or Uber or Dropbox, whatever company you want to think about, there are multiple venture capital firms who've invested in that business. And there are multiple venture capital firm partners that are on the boards of those companies. You know, it's, it's a very collaborative industry. We've sort of now entered this era where there's probably more VC firms than startups even. And so, you know, it is a little bit more competitive. But if you really just rewind the clock not too long ago, it was extraordinarily collaborative. And that the, the job of the venture capitalist who's on the board of the company is to help organize the fundraise. And typically that venture capitalist would have the network and connectivity into other venture capital firms and they would collectively invest in these businesses. So it's very collaborative. One of the investors who's on, you know, on the board of the company is Rebecca Ludoyle from Insight Partners. And 
we work on a number of companies together. She's one of my closest friends in venture capital. I admire her and think she's really wonderful. And when Avery was evaluating different partners, I definitely gave a strong recommendation. Now, ultimately, it's Avery and the founders who are making the decision about who to bring onto the company. And it's, you know, it's one of those decisions that can't be undone. You know, once you bring an investor into the business, they're kind of there forever. You know, it's, it's really hard to unwind those kinds of decisions. But, you know, I, I think we're really fortunate at Tailscale, and I'm very fortunate with some of the other companies I work with, to have really strong representation from other venture capital firms. And, you know, of course, it'd be wonderful if Excel was the only and largest shareholder in Tailscale forever. But the, the more important thing, the, the higher order bit that we're solving for is delivering a, a fantastic outcome for everyone. And we want Tailscale to be big and large and successful more than we want anything else, right? And so that's the most important thing to solve for. And so oftentimes the right thing to do is to bring in more partners because, you know, where Rebecca or Reed are really talented or the heavy big guys, the investors before me, where they're really talented, that's great. It can be very complimentary in terms of the value that different firms provide or different partners provide. Isn't there, I mean, you could have been all the rounds of funding, right? I mean, if you, uh, or is that just uh, uh, way too much of a risk on any one company? No, I mean, I, I would tell you, I mean, we love Tailscale. Like if, if Avery uh, today was like, hey, you get to put in this much more money, I think we would immediately do it. I think that the business is super exciting. Um, you know, it, it, it's oftentimes about designing what is the right outcome for the company, not just what's the right outcome for Excel. So, you know, yes, of course, we would love to keep investing in our best and brightest companies, but oftentimes it is valuable to bring in complementary experience or to bring the resources of another firm. And, you know, of course, we did invest and put a lot of money into that last round that was raised. But, you know, oftentimes the right thing is to bring other really smart people around the table to give Avery the kind of advice and support that he, he and the team need. And then, uh, Amit, you have some similarities. You uh, worked for quite some time at Microsoft and decided to leave. You've also founded a company, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me about some of the lessons you've learned. First of all, how do you decide, much like my question about leaving Google, how do you decide to leave Microsoft? Interestingly enough, and, and maybe it shouldn't be that surprising, you almost increase your employability when you take that risk and you go early and you start something. I mean, the reality is, you know, Microsoft and Google are wonderful companies. I mean, obviously, the leading companies are in, in our industry. And lots of my friends have worked at those companies for a really long time. And arguably, they're happier and more successful than me. But, you know, it's, it's one of the special things about Silicon Valley where risk-taking and, you know, almost failure, not that anyone's seeking failure, you know, where those things aren't looked down upon. I think those things are actually sought out. And when companies are trying to refer, refresh their ranks, they're trying to bring in people who have startup experience and have, you know, done the zero to one thing. Because oftentimes, you know, there's the value protection part of it where Google's trying to preserve and grow their search business. But oftentimes these companies are trying to initiate new initiatives, Right. And so, you know, the Avery's of the world who've gone off and started their own business are actually even more attractive um, at that point. So, you know, for me, it, I was young. It, it felt like that was a risk I could take. I, I felt like I was still very employable and I set off to go start a company. Now I started a company maybe for the wrong reasons. You know, I started a company because I think I've been told my whole life I should go start a company. I didn't have the right mentorship. I didn't raise capital, but, you know, I quickly learned from a series of companies. I started three companies. No one starts three companies if the first two are radically successful, you know, <laughs> but we kept getting better. I kept getting smarter, kept working with better and better people. And ultimately I found my way to Excel where I started a business called CardSpring. Excel was the venture capital firm that backed it. We ended up exiting the business of Twitter in 2014. I ran engineering for Twitter Commerce for a couple of years. I'm so grateful to Twitter for acquiring that company. I'm so grateful for the experience, the network that I 
you know, received from that. And, you know, without that moment, I don't think I would have been a venture capitalist. I think that that acquisition and being part of that special network at Twitter is what catapulted me into venture capital and gave me the opportunity and hopefully some of the credibility to work with the Averys of the world. You know, um, when we met Tailscale, it was, it was one of the, it was sort of one of the obvious ones. It was one of the companies that lots of venture capital firms had figured out was a special, some special place. And they were working on something that could turn out into, you know, one of these businesses we all look back on very fondly. And so, you know, it's very competitive out there. It's very competitive to win these investments. And, you know, it was a, it was a weird and special time. It was sort of the, the first major round that happened during COVID. And we're all on Zoom as we are now in the sort of Brady Bunch boxes and, and trying to get to know a founder. Avery was actually based in Canada. And so, you know, legally, I think it was actually impossible for me to go to Canada. I think there was all these rules and restrictions around getting into Canada. This was pre the vaccine. So, you know, obviously no one was vaccinated at the time. So it was, you know, it, it was a, it was a weird time. And I look back on my entrepreneurship, you know, fondly as, as giving me the credibility to go win those types of investments. Avery, is it still based in Canada? Are you still based in Canada? Uh, yeah, I live in Montreal. Okay. Uh, my co-founders are respectively, one of them is in Toronto, another one is in the Bay Area, uh, and we have employees all over Canada and the U.S. Is there any particular advantage to working and living in Canada for a startup entrepreneur? I mean, other than you um, love Canada and you're from Canada. Right. I'm from Canada. Uh, I lived in New York while I was working at Google. Uh, and when I left, I was thinking, okay, it's time to start another startup. I, I think I need the independence. Uh, and so like, what do I do to maximize my personal runway? Because I'm always thinking of like, what's the worst case scenario? And the worst case scenario is we can't figure out how to make any money for years at a time. And it's like, well, I looked at my savings account. I looked at how much it costs to live in New York. And I'm like, well, that's not bad. I can last for a few years. I, I, I lived frugally while I worked at Google. I saved up a lot. But if I move to Montreal, I think... I have infinite personal runway. That gives me a lot of chances to screw up. So how about I go back to Montreal? It's one of it's the lowest cost uh, urban center in Canada uh, for whatever reason. It's a beautiful place to live, but yeah. it means I can live there forever uh, and make a lot of mistakes. And then you know, in in typical, I guess, tail scale. Uh, or what became typical tailscale fashion. Uh, we got our first round of funding like six months later uh, and our first customer we'd already landed, which was like a bank. Uh, and so we nev I never really needed to dip really much into my savings. Uh, and so I guess I could have lived anywhere, but I, I love it here. Avery Penarin, founder of Tailscale and Ahmed Kumar of Excel Partners. Next week on Sand Hill Road... Every 30 seconds, there was somebody telling you, welcome to the White House, just in case you <laughs> forgot. It's like, I know I'm in the White House. You don't need to keep reminding me. Everybody here knows they're in the White House. Samesh Dash of IVP on AI, politics, and the perfect cup of coffee. The most important part is the beans. You got to make sure you have the right bean. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. 